Welcome back to Fireside, a podcast from FS Investments. I'm Laura Rame, Chief U.S. Economist here at FS Investments, and I'm joined for our first episode of the new year with Jason Cole. And these are episodes that we call What's Happening in Washington. Jason, welcome. Thanks, Laura. Good to see you. Jason is our head of public policy and corporate social responsibility. And I will brag for you because you've just had this exceptional two and a half decade career on and off Capitol Hill. And we've been lucky to have you here both on prior podcasts and we've presented together. And I always learn so much for your insights. So I always feel really excited when we get to sit down and dig apart some interesting aspects of policy and it's going to be an interesting year. Yeah, absolutely. And I love doing these. So thanks for having me. Uh, definitely. I wanted to talk more generally about the election. Who's going to win? <laughs> I have I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> Dang it. I was hoping that we would get <laughs> here on the FS Fireside podcast, we would get the, the answer. <laughs> No, that's that's going to be up to the voters. But what I what I can tell you is give you a sense of where things are heading. Okay. Um, right now, if you look at national polling, and by the way, I'm going to assume that we have a rematch between former President Trump and President Biden. That that just sort of seems to be where. Let's this make is that trending. today. But I did want to talk about some of the other like the primaries that are kicking up. Yeah, yeah absolutely. But, fair but, but yeah. for purposes of this, I want to sure. assume that there's a rematch of the sure. 2020 election. Pre- former President Trump is polling nationally about, on the average, about one percent percentage point ahead of President Biden. Okay. Now, we don't elect presidents in this country based on a national vote. There's really 50 state by state elections where you're not even voting for president, you're voting for somebody to, as an, an elector, to vote mm-hmm. for the president. And, and they're bound by however your state goes. There are 538 electoral votes across all of the states. It takes 270 to win. Right now, I would, I would argue that there are 44 states where we already know the outcome. Sure. Just just the way folks are locked into their sort of partisan lanes. Mm -hmm. Uh, President Biden begins with 226 of electoral votes and former President Trump begins with 235. That leaves 77 electoral votes up for grabs across just six states, Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. Okay. The New York Times did a poll back in November, mid-November, of just those six battleground states and showed President Trump winning in five of them. Okay. Every state but Wisconsin. Now, if those polls hold out, and there's been subsequent polling that suggests that they are, President Trump would win with 302 electoral votes to Biden's 236. All right. And so if the election were held today, to answer your question, and you believe the polling, former President Trump would get reelected. Okay. And I think I'm eager to hear because, and maybe this is a topic for a future podcast too, there's just so much to discuss whenever we sit down together, which is so exciting. And I know it's going to be a year of us doing doing these podcasts. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to digging apart many aspects of this. You know, one of the things that you mentioned to me back in November was that this still is not a certainty. It's not a done deal. And that I think we have a history of elections where, and I'm, you know, no dog in the fight here, but um, 
where things change. And I think one of the comments you made, which was interesting to me back in November, was this basically gives the Biden team a roadmap for what they now need to correct. Yeah, so, that, that's right. That New York, which, which is tough. I mean, it's not it's yeah, not good news for them. Yeah, but the, the, it's, that it's New York Times poll was was bad news across the board for Team Biden. Yeah, right. It showed independent voters, you know, running away from him. It, it showed his base, black voters, youth voters. Bratering. Right. And, but that effectively, again, gives that campaign a roadmap to who do we need to target? What are our messages need to be? And that's why, you know, close to $5 billion is going to be spent over the next, you know, 10 months on a campaign yeah. between, between both sides, right. trying to send messages to, again, a very small handful of voters in six states. And that's not only the only piece of the election, right? That's I think right. something that we we talk about that's so important for policy is you've also got the Senate, you've got the House. How do those turn out? Yeah, so the Senate right now is very narrow majority, just like the House. Mm-hmm. Democrats hold a one-seat majority in the Senate. And so if Republicans don't take back the White House, they need to pick up two seats. If they do take back the White House, they do need to pick up just one. There are contests where there are Democrats sitting in states Trump won from anywhere between eight and 40 some percent okay. back in 2020. West Virginia, Ohio, and Montana where there are incumbent Democratic senators. In West Virginia, Senator Manchin has announced his retirement. West Virginia is going to go Republican. Right. They're, they're, that, that's the state where President Trump won by 46% of the vote. Mm-hmm. Ohio and Montana are less certain, but they're going to be very difficult races for the incumbent Democrat to win. And remember, Republicans just need one of those seats in order to take back the majority. Right. There's a number of other Senate contests in Arizona, Nevada, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, that all have Democratic incumbents. You'll recall, I just named those states off as presidential battlegrounds. Yep. And so it'd be interesting to watch what tickets do voters vote for Trump for president, which they're signaling that they're going to do now, and then to hedge their bet, vote for a Democrat, or do they just vote straight party Stay line? Down. Interesting. And so right now, if, if you made me bet, I would wager that Republicans take back control of the Senate. Okay. In the House, again, there's a technically a five-seat majority once everything gets sorted out. Probably when it's all said and done, a four-seat majority. I think Democrats are likely to win a special election in New York. I think it's in February. And so four-seat margin in the House heading to the election. Redistricting has benefited both parties to a point where it's kind of a wash. Okay. And so it's going to come down to campaigns. Right now, you have 18 Republicans sitting in districts that President Biden won and five Democrats sitting in districts that President Trump won. Okay. So if you just do that math, and so if you do that math, yeah, if you do that math, Democrats take back control of the House. All right. That's way too simplistic to manage this. Campaigns need to be waged. And by the way, I I find it difficult to square, in my mind, a Trump presidential victory and a House of Representatives flipping from Republican to Democrat. Mm. It it that would be highly unusual. It hasn't happened since 1952. Okay. Um. And so right now, I think the House of Representatives is is a total toss up. Okay. 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 Want to move us now to the deficit, which you know. 
my role as chief economist, I think about the economy, the business cycle, and I think a lot about what I call macro markets. And obviously, Fed policy is deeply intertwined with both markets and the economy, but leads us to a discussion of interest rates, which, and when I think about macro markets, I think of equities, I think of core fixed income, I think of broadly credit markets, these sort of big asset classes. And I've also spent now decades in the field talking to advisors, talking to people. And it, it's been interesting to me that the deficit and government debt comes up a lot. But because of decades of falling interest rates, there's just developed this complacency that we know it's not a good thing to have a deficit and we know that we're carrying a lot of government debt, but it just isn't really going to matter. And I personally feel like this year, sort of the next five years, could be the years where finally that starts to really matter. And I know something you said that's interesting to me is that it's really fallen on the list of voter concerns. I look at the fact that for, you know, really the last 12 out of the last 15 years, interest rates were, for all intents and purposes, zero. And we were sort of issuing debt with our eyes closed. And from here, we're now in what I think you could describe as the start of a troubling cycle where, and I just put out my 10 for 24, one of the charts that to me I think is, is really important is the amount of government debt that matures in the next 12 months is $9.5 trillion. Three years ago, that was only $5 trillion. Mm. And three years ago, that was maturing at very different interest rates than it is today. And we've had, you know, long-term interest rates move down. I hear a lot from my colleagues out in the, in the world that interest rates have peaked. And I think maybe what they're talking about is the Fed funds rate, because it's extraordinary to me that they would say that about long-term interest rates, when if we're not going to have a recession or there's less likelihood of a recession, it's no longer my base case outlook. There's so much now government debt that needs to be cycled and needs to be issued. So I say, I give you this backdrop, Jason, because you have, you and I have talked about this before. And I think, you know, you talk about the problem that this massive deficit causes for the government trying to stimulate the economy, trying to address its programs. From your perspective, do you feel like this is a problem? Am I am I crazy? Am I the crazy one? <laughs> this no, is really I don't. I hitting don't, an issue, or <laughs> I don't. I don't think so. I think I think you're right to hit on this as a big problem, a looming problem. You're also correct in the fact that at least again, if you believe the polls, v this isn't registering for voters. Yeah, right. Their number one concern right now is inflation, cost of living, the economy, followed I think closely by immigration, debt and deficit barely registers when you look at most polling, um, particularly when voters are asked to offer up their answer. If it's if it's a choice in the poll, then it, that's a little different. But when voters are asked to offer up their answers, it barely registers. Yeah. And I think some of that, you're right, has to do with the fact for the last 12 or 15 years, policymakers have had this sort of fiscal free lunch 
where sure. be, the way to be, put it. I because, love that because interest rates have been so low, and and they can continue to spend um, without abandon, and frankly, without a lot of consequence. This year, however, you know, we at the end of the fiscal year on September thirtieth, the deficit came in at one point seven trillion dollars, which ratcheted up the debt ultimately to around thirty four trillion. Mm-hmm. But that fiscal so that's that's one hundred and twenty. Five percent of U.S. GDP. Exactly. Like, yeah. Exactly, and that's where folks like you, economists, begin getting worried about debt. Load, sure. Where you get up over a hundred percent, and economists start wringing their hands. But that deficit, one point seven trillion dollars, is six point three percent of GDP. Yeah. And it was driven really by three things: one, revenues, which were down last year mm-hmm. with the soft economy; two, mandatory spending such as Social Security and Medicare; and third, interest on the debt which last year rose to $659 billion, or 2.5% of so we're, GDP. We, we have deficits because we're having to pay now so much more we're now having to pay interest so much, on the debt. Exactly. That's and, the cycle. And That's that the, debt load right now, if you look across government programs, l- l- ranks fourth, if you want to call debt or deficit service or debt service a program, mm-hmm. it ranks fourth in spending behind Social Security, Medicare, and defense, and accounts for almost 80% of all other non-defense discretionary spending. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a super high burden. And if yeah. rates stay higher for longer, which I personally believe they will, the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, estimates that in 10 years, that interest, that debt service is going to exceed federal spending on things like Medicaid or Medicare and defense. And in 30 years, it's going to be the single largest program in the federal budget. Yeah. And that's without funding a troop, that's without paving a road. It's just money out the That's door. Money out the door. Yeah. And, and often to non-US. To non-to-US yeah. bondholders. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I, I think this is a huge problem. And what frankly concerns me is that you only have one presidential candidate talking about probably the biggest driver of this problem, and that's entitlement spending around Social Security and Medicare. All other candidates are saying we're not going to raise the retirement age, we're not going to cut spending. We're not going to increase revenues into Social Security and Medicare. We're not touching it. Well, I think and, you know and, we've always said those these are the hard choices, and these that, are extremely hard yeah. choices for politicians to make. Yep. But those two programs are absolutely going to consume the federal government's budget over the next two decades, and and then ultimately drive that interest <clears throat> that interest expense into a place where it's just unsustainable. Yeah. Over the next year. I think this idea that somehow there's going to be an immediate crisis, that nobody's going to want to absorb U.S. debt, I see it as more of a of a slow burn that U.S. U.S. Treasuries remain the global reserve asset of choice. The problem is that at the margin, there are just fewer buyers. Or... Let me put it this way. The Fed, right, is quantitative tightening now. They're Mm -hmm. letting that balance sheet roll off. So they're stepping away as one of the largest buyers. And then a lot of global countries that use treasuries or U.S. government-denominated bonds as a store of value for their central banks, I would argue that a lot of them have diversified away from that as much as they can already. There just aren't that many hangers to park a trillion dollar plane, I always say, (laughs) if you want to, if you're China, if you're Korea, if you're Taiwan, if you're Japan, you are going to have to hold some of those reserves. And 
a lot of it has to be in dollars because there just aren't that many German bonds. There aren't that many Swiss government bonds. All that said, they're not adding to their reserves as a strategy today. So I think they're more in maintenance mode of rolling this debt. And I think that's where you could potentially, I think, see this slow squeeze. I think as we get these auctions that are bigger and bigger, the treasury will get it done. I just, supply dynamics may matter for the first time. And I think that's a story that a lot of people are missing. Yeah, I think that's, Um, (laughs) I think that's right. You know, I'll tell you what I'm, I'm, I'm a little heartened about the fact that the new speaker has called for a deficit and debt commission. Okay. And it, Is that it, a bipartisan commission or? It would be a bipartisan commission. Okay. It would be a lot like the, back in the day, they called it the super committee back in 2011 okay. that, under the Budget Control Act. And that would ultimately look at those drivers of deficits and debt, including Social Security and Medicare. And if you could produce a bipartisan product out of that where members of Congress, politicians collectively have to leap off the proverbial cliff and do an unpopular thing, I think I think that's our way out of this. And so I'm hopeful that as we get into these spending discussions around shutdowns, that that debt and deficit commission can gain some traction and some legs to to maybe maybe begin having the conversation around this, which is so needed. Yeah. All right. Okay. You know, that's not the only policy that I think this focuses on. And want to just briefly touch on Something that I find so fascinating, I remember the first Trump, you know, the first election when Trump was elected in 2016 and his really, I think, very aggressive language around China and trade and moving towards a decoupling from China, which at the time felt radical and now feels more bipartisan. (laughs) And I think one of the observations you made, I don't mean to steal your thunder, but I found it fascinating when you said, you know, when Biden was elected, he did not change a single China trade tariff. He didn't make any change to that. And I think, you know, there's been a, I think deglobalization was the big buzzword of, of 2023. And I think this has somewhat fallen off the radar. Are there policies that, are really top of mind. And again, it's early days. I think we'll get more specific later in the year as we see how the election's developing. Um, but are there policies that you feel like are are on the chopping block or or are there policies that now, you? I mean, I think if Trump gets reelected, do we lean into more deglobalization? Tell me how you're thinking about these two outcomes. Yeah, it's an important question. And you're absolutely right. President Biden didn't cut a single tariff on China when he came in. The the China policy hasn't just stayed the same, but it's probably gotten even more stringent. Sure. And and it's probably the only bipartisan issue in Washington mm. right now wow. is is getting tough on China. You know, when when House Republicans took over, they stood up a brand new committee to, and these are their words, to quote unquote build consensus on the threat posed by the Chinese Communist Party and develop a plan of action to defend the American people our economy and wow. our values. That committee has been entirely bipartisan and right before the holidays released a bipartisan report calling for import and export controls, particularly around technologies that sure. and, and dual use technologies, yeah. calling for increased tariffs and stopping just short of revoking permanent normal trade relations from China, which would set off a trade war. Yeah. No doubt about it. 
President Trump on the campaign trail, not with respect to other entities and, and this question of yours about deglobalization broadly, not just with China, has proposed a 10% tariff on all goods from all countries coming into the United States. And this is a place where the president does have a lot of unilateral authority, Correct. right? In Correct. trade, yeah. Correct. Correct. And so this is a trend that that I think is going to continue. And it reverberates around in, in if you're an investor, in areas of opportunity as well. I mean, there's a lot of risk in tariffs. I mean, in my view, they're effectively a tax. But I think they're we all... just We just have made progress on inflation. That would yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> not be helpful. <laughs> it, it, exactly. But there are some areas where these tensions are rising that could create opportunities for investors. And that is in this, and people will disagree about the propriety of it, but there is this new industrial policy that is entering into the vernacular of both parties in Washington. You know, last year they passed a $280 billion bill to inject money into super in, into semiconductors and mm-hmm. to reshore semiconductor production in the United States. Yeah. Uh, a big part of the President's Inflation Reduction Act was doing things on green energy and to have that produced in the United States. And you know, where there's there's content requirements on electric vehicles now. If you want the tax credit for an EV, it's got to be, that EV has to be substantially produced in the United States. By the way, probably only a fraction of what the Chinese have dedicated towards spending on developing chips. So, yeah. Correct. But in in, in terms of federal government dollars flowing to specific industries, I think that's something investors need to take a look at. uh, Yeah, 100%. And and, and can see that there's, there's going to be substantial support for certain industries, particularly in the technology sector. What about financial regulation? I know that one of the things that we saw was a a really significant swing when Biden was elected. You know, what is it? Currently, there are 61 rules proposed at the SEC. When Trump was elected, uh, a lot of these were rolled back. Tell me where you think the direction or the how this seems like an area where the election outcome is very important. What is it? What's at stake? No, absolutely, and, and and so there's there's a there's a couple of things at stake. You're absolutely right. There's right now they're at the SEC. So for our primary regulator, sixty one rules either passed or proposed or going to be proposed. Now, my humble brag for you is you were literally meeting with the SEC right before we <laughs> correct. Yeah, we had a commissioner here yeah. in the offices and 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 talking about some of those potential regulations. There's going to be a rush to propose a number of regulations in the first half of this year because of some quirks in the law with respect to Congress being over, being able to override executive branch regulations in a new Congress if there's a new president and okay. a Republican trifecta. And so you're going to see the Biden administration really try to get things out the door before probably June, July to take that review process off the table. Okay. It is super technical, so I won't get it in, into it here. But but if there's a Republican trifecta, you could see a number of these regulations, particularly if they're not timed correctly, go away. Okay. And from a financial markets perspective, that wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing. Okay. If there's not a trifecta, the regulations are likely to stand. There's There's going to be a lot of compliance burdens, particularly on financial services firms. Um, to comply with these things. And so the elections do matter with respect to regulation. Okay. Um, particularly, and, you, and you see it particularly when there's 
gridlock and dysfunction in Congress, where the executive branch agencies, regardless of their Democrat or Republican, use their phone and their pen to do things that Congress won't otherwise do. Yeah. And we're seeing that now. We'll probably see the reverse of it if Trump is reelected. Okay. So final question I'm going to take us home with is tax cuts and the possibility of further tax cuts in the upcoming election. I think, you know, Trump 1.0, big corporate tax cuts. Today, the big expecta- individual tax cuts. Big individual well. yeah. tax cuts, of course. Expectation is that those will be extended. And if Trump 2.0, would we get more tax cuts on top of that? Or given the budget dynamics that we just finished discussing, part of me hopes not, but my, of course, personal wallet hopes we do. So this is always the conflict. But what are your thoughts on the appetite sort of from the American people and from the sort of publicly stated policy wonks? on the appetite for a a 2.0 fresh round of deeper cuts. That's going to depend on the election outcome. Okay. Right. right. And, and and if you Too soon it, to it, tell. Yeah, no, and if you have a trifecta, it's it's more likely than not that there's a deeper round. Right. But let's let's take a step back on taxes. There's some there's there's an interesting development happening on the hill as we speak where there is a limited tax deal being discussed that would extend expiring or expired provisions of the Trump tax cuts, namely the R&D tax credit for businesses, the interest expensing for businesses, and the deductibility of of capital purchases for businesses. Those all expired a year, and in the case of the research development tax credit two years ago, that would be coupled with about $35 to $40 billion in tax cuts to extend those through the end of 2025, and which would really marry the extension or the, the expiration up of the rest of the Trump, Trump tax cuts. That would be prepared with an extension of the child tax credit, which expired again, 35 to $40 billion. And that deal is close on the Hill. And so I think you could see some tax policy move in the, in the next couple of months. Okay. That, that does some tweaking of the two, 2017 tax cuts and at least in the provisions that have already expired. When we get around to the new Congress, there will be a lot of pressure to extend the 2017 tax cuts. No politician wants to see taxes go up on their watch. Mm-hmm. And by doing nothing, taxes will go up on corporations and individuals. And so there's going to be a lot of pr- pr- pressure to extend those regardless of who's in office. Sure. Whether you go further, I think depends on the election outcome. Okay. Well, I know that this is just the first of many conversations we'll have in 2024. So thank you for your time. Again, we are just so lucky to have you as a resource. And I know you do a lot with our Thrive programs. You are on the road constantly talking to our clients. You're in Washington. I don't know how you do it all and find the time. So I'm really appreciative that you were able to come into our studio today and talk with us. No, this has been great. I'm I'm always happy to do it. These are a lot of fun. So thanks (laughs) so much. Thank you so much, Jason. Take care. This episode was recorded at the FS Investments headquarters in Philadelphia's historic Navy Yard. It was produced by the investment research team. It was edited and engineered by Aaron Sherman. Special thanks to show coordinator Ellie Zhang. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.